Hi, this is Mary Coughlin, and I want to welcome you to the Care Out Loud podcast, presented to you by Caring Essentials Collaborative, founder of the Trauma-Informed Professional Certificate Program and internationally recognized leader in trauma-informed developmentally supportive education for parents and professionals serving babies, children, and families in crisis around the globe. I'm wicked excited you're here as we talk about caring out loud. In each moment lies a unique opportunity to create a kinder, more connected and compassionate world one moment at a time. And it all begins with you. is with Britt Pados, a neonatal nurse practitioner, international board-certified lactation consultant, and trauma-informed professional with a PhD in nursing that focuses on feeding in infants with medical complexity. She's previously cared for infants in the NICU and currently practices in an outpatient private practice setting, providing infants and families support for feeding difficulties, growth concerns, and gastrointestinal symptomatology. On a personal note, Britt is the mother of three, and on weekends, you can find her, her husband, children, and their dog in a soccer field somewhere in the state of Massachusetts. Welcome, Britt Pados. I am so pumped to have you join us on Care Out Loud podcast. If you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of how you've evolved to your current role. So I... How did I get to my current role? During my undergraduate program, I got like a little bit of a taste of research and that just kind of was always interesting to me. And I think along the way, I've realized I have a little bit of a track record of kind of not following the rules. (laughs) I went directly from my undergraduate program into the NICU which was sort of a no-no. I was supposed to go into something with adults. Yeah, exactly. But that just didn't make any sense to me. I knew from a very early young age, I just have always been fascinated by babies. And it did not make any sense to me to... (laughs) go work with adults. I had the opportunity in my undergraduate program, I did my final clinical rotation in the NICU. And so they knew me and I was offered a job and I loved it. But I think having kind of this taste of research and then getting into the NICU, I realized that a lot of what we were doing wasn't based on research. Our ability to save these little tiny babies was really very new. And we just didn't, you know, there wasn't the time yet to have research to support a lot of what we were doing. And there was a lot of things that we were doing that also didn't really make sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I decided to go back and I got my master's and became a neonatal nurse practitioner and went into a level four NICU as a new NNP, which was wild, but I learned so much. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that people gave me those opportunities to do intense things. Yeah. And 
in that role, I noticed these babies were surviving being born extremely prematurely or in the NICU I was in, we had babies who had cardiac surgery. So they would survive these surgeries that were just incredible. And they would get to the point where they would start eating. And that was always kind of this point of excitement because it felt like, especially for the families, it felt like, okay, this baby has gotten to this really important part of the process. And it's the last step before they go home, right? I would just watch these babies struggle so much with feeding And it was so heartbreaking for families because it was often the last thing before they got to go home. Like you would never, you know, I mean, those are just aren't kind of what's expected of parents to manage tubes and whatever, but feeding is, and that feels so bad when that doesn't go well. Knowing early on that I wanted to do research, I went to do my PhD program focusing on feeding in babies with medical complexity because we didn't understand why they were struggling so much and we didn't know how to support them, particularly babies with cardiac. was such a hit or miss strategy. I think we'd extrapolated a lot of stuff that we would do with healthy babies and just yeah. figure like, let's try this out and not really appreciating all of the backstory, all of the nuance, all of the, I mean, the experience of the trauma of their medical condition and how it impacted that natural um, evolution of these skills. And I don't know if I can say the desires and the relational um, components of something that is so quintessential about being a baby that I think we just missed a lot of that. So good golly, what a breath of fresh air and desperately needed science to really uncover that and unbundle that. So boy, I know a lot of babies that are wicked happy about your trajectory and your experience. (laughs) Thank you. I started thinking about these feeding challenges from kind of a trauma-informed lens. I mean, when you really sit down and think about it, think about all the things we do to these babies' faces and mouths, of course, then when we're like, here's a bottle or here's a breath, of course, they're like, no, absolutely not. Get that away from when I think about it that way. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of folks do think of it that way, you know? So for you, you observed something, it didn't feel right. And it piqued your curiosity to pursue that. And that was well before you, you know, went on to become a trauma-informed professional, but you felt that something was missing, that there was a gap. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always thought about feeding and my research within this lens of stress and trauma long before I became a trauma-informed professional. It, and I think it's fascinating how you've taken this another step further. You've done the research and you've just made incredibly significant contributions to neonatal nursing, to neonatology at large, but you've even now advanced in your evolution from a professional perspective to now being an entrepreneur and serving and living your philosophy, your your science that you've created in caring for these babies and families who have survived the NICU but might be struggling to thrive beyond due to their oral and feeding experiences that they endured in the NICU. 
Is that? Yeah. So I went on for my PhD program and went into the traditional academic role, which was an incredible opportunity to get my research off the ground and really had the opportunity to touch the lives of students becoming nurses. When you asked about becoming a trauma-informed professional, I read your first book a long time ago. (laughs) And for many years, I was teaching just one class within the kind of maternal child course every semester on trauma-informed care of the neonatal. Really? Oh, that is so wicked cool. Yeah. It felt like an opportunity to share my passion with students. One of the challenges was I wasn't teaching the people who were going to do the things that I was passionate about. Um, And so in my evolution, kind of came to the realization that I wanted wanted to just make a bigger impact than I was able to make in that role. So yeah, I took that leap of faith (laughs) to become an entrepreneur. And I started two businesses, one focusing on providing clinical care to babies in my community. I saw, particularly from COVID, a lot of the support systems for new families evaporated. Even before that, the amount of support was minimal. I really wanted to get back into seeing babies and families. So I I have one business where I I do my clinical practice and um, provide education for parents and healthcare professionals around feeding. And then I have another business uh, that tests uh, the flow rates of bottle nipples um, with the goal of providing parents and professionals with the information they need to feed babies. I mean, it's just incredible. The, The work that you've done exposing relevant gaps in how we provide care. Nurses want to create nurturing experiences, but when you don't have the evidence, we operate on assumptions and your best intentions. But again, there's no guarantee that those best intentions are going to play out the way you want to when you have those knowledge gaps. The work you've done with trying to quantify and characterize these different nipples so that you can give parents and professionals, the information they need to be respectful of the baby's skill set and and capabilities and, and respond appropriately to those different situations. And for parents too, I think it's not like nurses have this magic about feeding. I mean, feeding is a very natural, right? Human thing, definitely quintessential to being a parent. Yeah. And so I think that shared passion for wanting to do it right but not even knowing that, oh, what we're doing isn't right, like holy moly, because I never even thought of that. And then you come across this and you're like, how many other things are we, are we doing or providing that may not really be um, the right thing, regardless of our intention? So I think you really were a pioneer in that work. You focused on the nipple issue, but you also saw that it was just one piece of a larger challenge for babies and families that you had the skill set to support and guide. I, I wonder now, I'm honored that you actually had read the first book and that you were teaching on that. And it also makes me want to ask the question. So in in that kind of maybe discovery of that concept and the relevance that it had in the NICU and the journey that you've been on to now becoming a certified trauma-informed professional, how has that journey 
shaped your understanding of the needs of babies, families, and even clinicians? I'm sure you're, you know, you're making, you're, you're doing clinician education around this. Has that had any influence on that journey and the service that you provide? It feels so embedded in everything that I do. It's hard for me to pull out how it has shaped that. It is the other part of the journey I didn't mention, which is my personal experience Mm -hmm. with the NICU and complicated pregnancy. Learning more about the trauma-informed professional program helped me think about my own experience in a trauma-informed way. You know, I knew it was traumatic, but there's a step beyond acknowledging the trauma to thinking about everything you do within that lens of understanding that trauma and what it means for your life. I mean, being a mom of a baby who's had that experience. We had a long journey of trying to get pregnant and then I got pregnant with twins, which was so exciting. Uh, And had, you know, a relatively uncomplicated early part of the pregnancy. (laughs) And then at 23 weeks, started contracting. And, you know, at that time, 23 weeks was not considered uh, able to be saved. They sent me home and said, see if you can make it another week. We sat at home for a week trying to make it to that next week. And we did. And, but then had just a really, was in and out of the hospital on bed rest from 23 weeks on. And by some miracle, we made it to 34 weeks and delivered, had the babies were healthy. I was actually very sick. So we ended up with a C-section under general anesthesia. The hospital policy at the time was my husband was not allowed to be in the delivery room because I was under anesthesia. Which, uh, thinking back, feels wrong. I was robbed of that experience, but there was no reason why my husband had to be robbed of that experience of the birth of our children. But that was hospital policy. And so by the time I woke up, the babies were gone. I was so sick that I didn't see them until they were about 16 hours old. My husband was running back and forth between two babies in the NICU and me and I'm telling him like, go with the babies. And he's looking at me like, you are not okay. And I ended up being okay. (laughs) And we all ended up okay. If I was the NNP and I walked into this room and here's, these babies are okay. This I would think, okay, this is pretty good. They're 34 weekers. They don't need any respiratory support. They're okay. But that just, it was like, you would miss the whole trauma. Yeah. Right? Yeah. (laughs) And that's what happens. And- I think that experience just totally changed how I thought about, I mean, we, we meet these families and it's like, we know nothing about their story and only in being present with them, might we develop a relationship where they feel comfortable sharing any of that with? So that's really profound what you just said, because you're absolutely right. We, we don't know their story. We need to be present with them. I mean, that's what they're aching for. And yet they don't even realize that's what they're aching for. When you are in a traumatic situation, you're drowning and you can't think of anything else. So has that lived experience and then the work, the passion around the work that you do, how do you create that sense of 
of presence, that sense of being seen for these families who have survived that acute slash maybe semi-chronic situation, but are maybe now in an outpatient environment. They're at least a home, which I also, I just realized as I say that there's some caution around that too, but it doesn't mean that everything is, is right as rain. Uh, And I have to come and see you because we still have ongoing challenges that are affecting something that is so quintessential to my child's life, being able to eat and enjoy that experience and grow. I mean, obviously an important piece of the eating experience, gaining weight. So how do you approach that level of care with that understanding that you just described? You know, I think the most important thing I do is I make sure I allow enough time. This is part of the benefit of owning my own practice. People just need to be heard. They want to have somebody ask them how they are doing and ask them about their story and actually have the time to sit there and listen. Or equally important to any recommendations I make around feeding is just in helping them to understand their baby and why their baby is struggling. Because you're right. I think there's such a focus in the NICU on getting this baby home Mm. that the strategies that are used don't really equate to long-term success with feeding. And there's kind of this moment once people are home where they realize that like, okay, our goal now is different. And so we might need to change up what we're doing here. This baby needs to eat like forever. I think allowing people time to understand their own experiences, share those experiences and helping them to read their baby. Um, you know, you bring up different thoughts around this whole experience for the parent, reading some of the literature about um, parents' experience of, you know, transition to home, discharge home, and um, the post-NICU period. A lot of them feel frightened, overwhelmed, like that safety net is gone now, and they're freaking out, all understandable. How, in your role, seeing this and uncovering these needs, these priorities, because things have shifted, might feel confusing to a parent who was on track and now you're discharged, now you're on track B and it's different language, different expectations, different everything that that disconnect can maybe feel really like, I don't know, disoriented. Like, did somebody miss the bus here? Why, why am I just hearing this now? We've been in the hospital for X, you know, kind of a thing. What kinds of insights or understandings has the work that you're doing now provided for you that maybe it's important to share back? And and as I say this, I realize just because you discovered it and you share it back doesn't mean anything's going to change. But what are the discoveries that you're making that could really maybe help influence how we're caring for them in that track A? Yeah, I, I think it motivates me even more to make change in the NICU. We really need to be from the very beginning thinking about the long term. Yes. <laughs> I have a paper where I did a meta-analysis of the literature on feeding difficulties in children between the ages of one and four who were born preterm. Mm-hmm. And found that 42% of them had significant feeding difficulties. Oh, That's almost half. And 
I would say that's probably an underestimate because most of those studies excluded the kids that we know are at highest risk, right? right. So they excluded the children with feeding tubes, which is the definition. Crazy. So it's probably closer to 50%. Yeah. So 50% of our, and the, these were babies even born up to 37 weeks. Really? So even those late, my twin. Your children. That is astounding. We have to do better. One of the things that I've realized is that I only ever saw babies in the NICU. Many of the people who work in the NICU never see them afterward. They might get the update periodically or the family might come back and visit. But in those instances, you're only hearing the good things. Only the people who are working in the neonatal follow-up clinics who do both yes. NICU and neonatal follow-up or sometimes there are therapists who see yes. children in both situations. But so I would say the vast majority of neonatal nurses yeah. never see them after. And so bringing that knowledge of what's happening afterwards back into the NICU and saying, this is what's happening, what you do in the NICU really matters and we need to be thinking about this kind of longer term. So I would say it has been really important for me to see that and understand that. And then like you said, bring it back. Yeah. And really motivate change from the very beginning. Before we have that first feeding, we exactly. have to be thinking about from the moment that baby is born, how are we handling this baby? How are we touching this baby? What kind of sensory experiences are, is this baby having that is going to impact them? Yeah, yeah. forever. Exactly. Not just for feeding, but for, no. I mean, and do you have a sense then like, because it does impact absolutely everything. Where do I start? Um, would you be able to kind of based on your experience and your research, what are the top, top priorities then? Are there some maybe top two or three priorities that you think are really relevant for clinicians to kind of get their heads wrapped around so that we can really start improving the experience of care with a focus on those long-term outcomes in the inpatient side? Yeah, I would say skin-to-skin -skin care. <laughs> we have so much evidence. There is so much research. Yeah. The skin-to-skin -skin care is not a nice thing to do, right? That it was nice for parents. We have so much research that the, uh, this is a critical component to providing excellent neonatal care. It should no longer even be a question. It has to be part of our care. And it helps everything, including feeding. <laughs> right. It's um, everything for your buck. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, um, and then prior to feeding, think about every time they touch a baby's face or mouth, how that baby experiences that. Even non-nutritive sucking, we have evidence that, that that's really helpful. We have to think about how we're doing yeah. that. That shoving a pacifier in a baby's mouth, sort of propping it up in a way that they have no other option but to keep it in their mouth, that yeah. that is not a positive experience. But I think that <laughs> when we do start feeding, I would just love us to get to a point where we start babies safe. So often 
the plan is kind of like, well, let's start them on a standard flow nipple. And then when they fail, we'll yeah. go to slow flow. Yeah. Why we know which babies are at high risk. Let's just start safe and then advance yeah. them as they grow and develop. So yeah, that's yeah. my. <laughs> I love that you said that, uh, you know, starting them at, with safety in mind, because it seems like a no brainer. We just, we don't think very complex about feeding. I don't think um, we really appreciate the, the intimacy of that experience. I love when you were talking about the, the pacifier thing, you know, and I mean, people, we call it a plug, right? I mean, we, we plug them up and then we're trying to figure out ways of everything, but duct taping it across their face to keep it in. And again, I think we're well-intentioned, but incredibly misguided and misinformed about what that experience is. is. And this one word just kept jumping up. So I have to spot it out. It's really about that idea of human dignity, you know, that we don't treat these little people with the dignity and respect of another fellow human being. Although I think we're really short on that dignity and respect with fellow human beings in general, it's disheartening. And particularly when we're having these encounters with people that are figuring out what it is to be human on our watch. So these experiences that they're having that are frightening, that are um, aggressive, that are overwhelming, are wiring their brains for how they need to be to navigate their life. You know, this is something you talk about all the time. And I talk about it in the context of feeding to learn something new. We have to feel safe and actually be safe. Yes. And that's true with feeding, right? Babies have to be actually be safe because it is very possible that the way we're feeding them is not safe for them. And they also have to feel safe Mm -hmm. in order to learn this new skill of eating, which they haven't been asked to do before. Even with healthy full-term babies, whenever I'm teaching parents about feeding, I always talk about it as you're offering the feeding. Exactly. And and then they have to give you permission. Yes. Right? We're never putting a bottle nipple in a baby's mouth without them kind of realizing what's happening and opening their mouth and accepting it. We know this baby needs to eat. If they don't want to eat, that's really scary, but they have to give us permission or they get to a point where they completely refuse. And then we're in a, in a much bigger really bad place. I mean, and we have strategies that we can employ when they don't give us permission. I mean, we may not want to use the feeding tube or some other device, but for safety's sake, we right. have to do that. Just like that example you gave about the fast flow. And if he chokes, well, then we'll try something different. Really? Is that, you're really going to go with that as your best option coming out of the gate? Yeah. It just, it doesn't feel like you're caring about this situation. You're just kind of checking off a box. And I mean, tube feedings, the way we talk about tube feedings with parents. Yeah. Oh, it can either feel like a failure or it can feel like an opportunity. And I think our words, especially as nurses, when we're talking about tubes, helping the family to understand that this is a way that we can make sure they're getting the calories that they need for their 
brain to grow and develop and their bodies to grow, which is what we need, while also keeping this feeding experience really positive so that they want to do it. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. Um, but I think that our words really matter yeah. um, and can make such a, a huge difference for how families feel about the situation. Oh my gosh. I mean, we could talk forever about that particular <laughs> subject because it is, it's just so critical, but I appreciate how you've positioned it because there are so many gaps, so many opportunities for education, for ongoing learning across all the disciplines. But I do emphasize nursing a lot because we're there the majority of the time. It, everything's happening on our watch. And so we really need to be dialed into the experiences that we're creating with the idea of preserving not just the, the short-term objectives, but the integrity of this individual over their lifespan. The work that you're doing, in my estimation, just really exemplifies what it means to care out loud. I mean, you just care out loud in such a big, meaningful, intellectual, and compassionate way. I do want to get a sense from you, too. Like, you know, when you saw that, you know, she, oh, she's doing a Care Out Loud podcast. What the heck is that all about? What did, what did you think about caring out loud and how did it hit you? Well, I love the name because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are <laughs> in what you would call caring professions, right? We do th what we do because we care. We just kind of get desensitized to <laughs> what we're doing. Yeah. And I think it takes that step of actually saying it out loud to remind ourselves and everyone around us of how important the things that we do are. I think one of the really wonderful things about the trauma-informed professional program is giving people the words mm. to communicate that to the rest of the world. And then using those words so that other people start to build this framework. And it's not just in neonatal care. It is in all it is. of healthcare. I've heard other people talk about the trauma-informed professional program saying how it made them a better human. I probably wrote something like that in my reflections on the program. We just need more people talking about it. Yeah. You know, trauma-informed care. It, it's a term now that is, people are saying, and I think really starting to use those words out loud and putting what we're doing into that context and sharing it with other people, whether it's our individual interactions or on a broader scale of teaching and publishing. Like that. I, I love that you said that that last bit about in whatever way is is your way, because that's the other piece of this is this is not a cookie cutter approach to care out loud is just really an invitation. Bring your best self, bring your passionate self to, you know, your story when we kicked off the podcast and you kind of laying out your roadmap that brought you to this place now where it seems is giving you great joy, a sense of fulfillment. I'm doing this work and we're all invited to step out of line and care out loud through our own calling, whatever it is that lights us up and brings us joy. And really, right? I think it's a process of learning how to do all of those things while also caring for ourselves. Yeah, well said. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you so very much for all of this. I do have one final, well, actually I have two final questions, right? Just one nugget of insight or wisdom that you'd like to share with folks that are listening that that you've gained over over your career that you'd like to just kind of impart. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) A very simple one would be the labels on bottle nipples do not mean anything. There is no standardization or regulation of what those things say. So even if something says slow flow, it just doesn't mean anything. Maybe join the effort to make a change there. Join your network. And I'll put all of this information down below in the show notes. There is evidence that Brit has curated all of this information that can help you make choices with knowledge to best serve your patients. That's what it's all about. Safety. Now the fun question, okay? <laughs> so this is what I'm calling a few of my favorite things part of the, the podcast. So I'm going to rapid fire you. Whatever pops into your head, don't overthink it. Ready? Favorite book? Quiet. Oh, excellent. Favorite movie? The Proposal. Favorite song? Yes. <laughs> Favorite activity? Um... Watching my kids play soccer. Perfect. Now we've gotten a little bit behind the curtain <laughs> in understanding <laughs> Brit Pados a little bit deeper, not just her big brain and big hat, but her big fun too. And I want to thank you so very much. You're just so gracious to share all of this information. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope you'll join me next week as I get to spend some quality time with Kimberly Novod the founder and executive director of Saul's Light Foundation, a nationally recognized and New Orleans-based community leader and passionate advocate who envisions a Louisiana in which neonatal intensive care unit and bereaved families receive the comprehensive support they need to lead meaningful lives. It will be powerful. Showing up on purpose makes the difference. And it begins when we care out loud together.